Welcome to the Euro Intelligence Podcast. I'm Wolfgang Munchau and with me are Susanne Munchen and Jack Smith. Today we want to talk about gas, the cut of Russian gas, the reduction in gas volumes to Germany in particular, and about Sunday's second round of the French parliamentary elections. Jack, you've been writing about gas this morning uh, or for the last few days and about the cut in gas, which initially sounded like a technical thing, or at least we weren't sure. There was always the suspicion when something like that happens. Now it's very clear, it seems, that th this is a political decision. So what, what do you think is the background to this and what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, so... You know, for, firstly, for a bit of context for anybody who's not particularly kind of au fait with gas, there are kind of basically four main pipeline routes by which Russian gas enters the European Union, right? So the biggest of these routes is Nord Stream, which sometimes for sake of clarity, we call Nord Stream 1 to differentiate from Nord Stream 2. That runs from a city called Vyborg in Russia to Germany. There is Yamal Europe which runs through kind of basically through Belarus to Poland and then on to Germany at Malnov. And then there is the Ukraine transit network, which we kind of treat as like one big amalgam. And that kind of the biggest entry point to the EU is in a Slovak town called Velky Kaposani. And we also have Turkstream, which as the name suggests, runs from uh, kind of near Krasnodar in the Black Sea to Turkey. Um, so the biggest of these by far by volume is Nord Stream. Now, there had been a lot of kind of variability and choppiness on the Ukraine transit and Yamal Europe. Um, in fact, about a month or so ago, Russia effectively shut Yamal Europe down entirely by passing sanctions against the operator of the Polish section of that pipeline. But, you know, for most of the kind of recent crisis, gas flows through Nord Stream have been pretty much at their maximum capacity, right? Now, this changed this week. So earlier this week, initially, Gazprom, who both kind of, you know, supplies the gas that runs through Nord Stream and um, operates the pipeline through their kind of controlling stake in Nord Stream Agé, they said, okay, we're going to cut what is 167 million cubic meters of flow per day by 67 million cubic meters. Um, the reason they ostensibly gave for this was issues with turbines. Um, so, you know, stop me if this is getting too detailed, but, no, no, um, this is very you interesting. know, basically as, as, as one would imagine, gas needs a certain amount of pressure to pass through pipelines. And so in order to have that pressure, you have a compressor, you have compressor stations along the pipeline. Mm -hmm. Those compressor stations, which provide that pressure to push the gas along are powered by turbines and the turbines at the compressor station near Vyborg are you know, they're, they're basically made by Siemens, you know, the German kind of engineering company. Now, initially, Gazprom had said, well, the issue is that there is a turbine that was supposed to return to operation um, at the Russian compressor that was stuck in Montreal in Canada. Um, and, and allegedly it was stuck there because of Western sanctions, right? Um, somebody on Twitter mocked up a very funny um, map of what they claimed was the was the turbine stuck in Canada. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was a sad turbine. But um, no, um, you know, eventually Siemens confirmed that there was in fact a turbine that was in Montreal and they were trying to figure out what the hell was going on with this turbine. But they also said that um, Rostechnadzor, which is the kind of, you know, Russian network regulator and the equivalent of, say, the German federal network regulator, but in Russia, had said that they had to shut down a few more turbines because allegedly they were overdue for overhaul. So 
what it ostensibly sounded like was that there were technical problems leading to this cut in capacity. Initially, I was very reticent to say that this was kind of a politically motivated decision because these things do occasionally happen with pipelines that, you know, or LNG2 and stuff like this. You you, you do have kind of like accidents or reasons like this for why um, the cuts in capacity would happen. Um, but then as time went on, the second thing that happened, of course, was the day after Gazprom had said that they needed to cut, you know, another lot of capacity. So the total cut would now be 100 million cubic meters per day. So you were going from 167 million cubic meters per day to 67 million cubic meters per day. This was really the point at which people started kind of going, oh, what is going on? Although some people did before that too, but, you know, um, it, it kind of became clear that what they were claiming couldn't really feasibly lead to this sort of cut in output. Um, this is also what the German government had said, what Robert Habeck publicly said. And he said, OK, we now think that this decision is politically motivated. Mario Draghi said it even more forcefully uh, the other day. He basically um, said that the Russian excuses were lies, putting it very bluntly. So I think it's pretty clear now that, you know, regardless of the fig leaf excuses that the Russians are giving for why this capacity cut has happened, it, it is politically motivated. The um, Russian ambassador to the EU also said um, yesterday that, again, for quote-unquote turbine-related reasons, the entire pipeline's operations could be suspended. If if this were to happen, obviously, if this is for political reasons, then Russia will probably want something in return for reopening this. So this is part of, you know, it looks to me like it's the beginning of a negotiation. Is it feasible for Russia to say, look, uh, you know, we would like your sanctions to be lifted in return for the gas? Or do you think they're just bluffing? I mean, previously, we've, we had to be careful with Russian Russia bluffing because bluffing is not something they do a lot. So the question is, what, how do we, how should we interpret this going forward? Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's the difficult bit, right? You know, if only, I'm a, if only I could read Vladimir Putin's mind. Well, if I, if, I, if I could read Vladimir Putin's mind, a lot of this wouldn't be happening now, but that's beside the point. Anyways, um, yeah, there, there are a few possibilities. Um, one, one thing that somebody from Gazprom did say the other day was that, you know, Nord Stream 2 could still operate. But um, no, I mean, there, there are a few possibilities, right? Um, I think that the most likely of these possibilities is that this is to prepare for later. So one of the things that has been happening in the EU is that, you know, European gas buyers have been injecting a lot of gas into storage. Um, you know, you might remember from this winter that there were lots of worries about kind of storage capacity running out eventually. Now, from that point, we have pretty much reached the kind of average on a five yearly period for gas storage. And that's been accomplished by injecting gas into storage at a record rate. My own kind of preferred hypothesis is that the Russians have looked at this, basically said, no, this is going to reduce our leverage further down the line. And so they've started cutting the flows using these kind of, frankly, pretty flimsy technical excuses um, to slow down or stop the storage injection, which will ultimately make the EU more vulnerable to any kind of blackmail in later on in the year, like late in summer or in autumn or at the beginning of winter. 
Yeah, that sounds that sounds very plausible. If if we follow the debate in Germany, uh, in particular, I'm I'm detecting much more of this. Oh, we need to cut a deal. The last thing we can afford is a cut in, in Russian gas. There's a sheer degree of panic. Now, we we saw the, some German economic institutes predicting a relatively mild economic effect. But it seems to me that this is the classic sort of macro cutting through the, you know, cutting through everything observation rather than understanding or rather than trying to understand the kind of singularity of a Russian gas cut, what, you know, the kind of the kind of chain effect that it could could have. I mean, industry would stop producing other industry, but there would be sort of a ratchet effect that would go through the economy very much the way uh, the collapse of Lehman Brothers, which was its impact massively underestimated at the time, affected the global financial system through a number of mechanisms that were generally not understood at the time when the Federal Reserve took the decision not to bail it out. This is a very similar, to me, it looks like a very similar similar situation. So they're trying to avoid this at all costs. And we've seen Schultz, everything Schultz has done, um, basically being very consistent with the idea of you know, or a hope that there would be some kind of a deal by the autumn. And if that deal didn't come, there would be a situation for which it doesn't look like they're prepared. Or do you think there is a plan B? Well, I mean, I think there there will be a plan B because there kind of has to be a plan B, right? Like there is like, you know, Germany already had kind of contingency plans in place for severe security of supply disruptions, as other countries do. Um, You know, Germany operates a kind of three step scale. So the the plan, if there was a really severe security of supply disruption, would involve basically the state taking over the running of the gas network and procurement and things like this. Um, It would involve rationing to prioritize priority customers. So, you know, domestic consumers, as well as services like hospitals and schools. So, you know, I I, I think there, there, there isn't that sense of plan B simply because, you know, in a kind of modern industrialized country like Germany, you need to have a plan B. But yeah, I mean, yeah, but that's a plan. That's a plan for for how you know who gets hit first. It's not a plan. It's not a plan to solve the problem. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I mean, there, again, there is a there is a plan that's come out of the economics ministry. Now, um, that plan, which involved phasing out Russian gas by twenty twenty four, seems to me quite optimistic. Um, also, you know, Robert Habeck recently said that he thought that Germany could make it through, like you know the winter, but that also seemed very optimistic and was conditional on gas storages being pretty much full in Germany. Which and does, the winter being mild and another string of optimistic... There was a string of optimistic assumptions. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think any way you cut it, there are ways to kind of limit how bad this is going to be, but regardless of what you do, this is going to be bad. Also, there's been a lot of attention on the kind of short to medium term impacts in terms of a recession. But I mean, and I think you guys would probably agree, there will be longer term ones in terms of Germany's political economy and its economic model, right? We've already seen a pretty drastic fall in Germany's current account surplus. Mm -hmm. I think if you look at a world with, you know, structurally higher energy prices, plus, you know, factories that will close and not reopen again, you're dealing with almost kind of like a, a hastened end to the heavy industry model. I mean, let me just say something very, very controversial. It's the best thing in the long run, the best thing that can happen to Germany because they haven't made the, the, the structural transition. They've been still basically in the widget production mode, uh, heavily reliant on gas and on fossil fuels. 
there has to be, um, you know, the, I mean, I know the Green Party has been talking about post-industrial societies, a very unfashionable subject among certainly the German elites. But I think it's absolutely necessary to think about that. Uh, a lot of what Germany does is not sustainable, but it has been very profitable. And the you know, that combination of something that's very profitable and something that is not sustainable is always difficult for a country to, to kind of wean itself off because you're ultimately trying to wean itself off something that seems to be very successful and certainly was very successful in the past. But Germany has clearly not embraced the you know any of the 21st century technologies in a, in a big in a big big phase. Maybe with the you know some of the you know vaccination biotech stuff, this is an exception. But Germany has not been taking a lead in artificial intelligence and machine learning in and robotics so there are a number of areas I mean where we you know which are which are electric cars uh, yeah but I was going to say even, even in green industries right you know like ones I think that the Germany could do very well in are, are things like you know wind turbine production you know but that that also I think requires a different attitude to this stuff at the European level now thankfully I think with the greens in government that's starting to come through and Germany's mm. being a more forceful oh. advocate of those kind of facilitative measures for the green transition at the European level. But you, you do need that. I think that is an area where Germany can really take the lead and do very well in the 21st century. But again, that's that's not really been there for several reasons. That's right. It's, it's still stuff that's got to happen. And usually change comes about through a shock. It doesn't come about when you have the CDU in government, basically. Well, you need to have a different uh, incentive structure yeah. for, for things to change. Otherwise, why, if it's profitable, why would you want to change, right? And, yes, uh, yeah. that's, that's right. And, and and pretty much the system, the, I mean, the whole grand coalition mentality was about preservation of the system, the continuation. It was about the management of the system. Mm-hmm. And, um, you, you know, there's no, and, and the fact that the, you still have a grand coalition partner in, you know, as the leader of the government still means that this transition is at most incomplete the, mm-hmm. you know the green party is there and it's probably the most it's making the biggest splash among the, of the three parties in government it's, it's clearly, oh, by, by a margin it's like clearly margin. the most successful yeah, yeah. Of, the, of the three coalition partners um and that's uh, and that's also now reflected in you know in state election results and, and general opinion polls they are now very close in the polling to the spd and harvick is clearly ahead of schultz as on, on the personnel personal rating uh, so there is a potential for uh, harvick and Baerbach, really they're both both of know, them the, the, she, the she's both, actually the, yeah. she's actually at the top of the polls again and so it's you know, it, it it could she could she could be you know she could run again in in twenty four. He could run again. I think they have a probably a, an agreement that he would be the candidate next time. But who knows? You know, when when the situation changes, those agreements might fall quite quickly. Mm-hmm. You remember the Blair Brown agreement from nineteen ninety seven? That didn't last very long. I mean, eventually it 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 came. It was it was pulled, but only after kind of an internal crisis. They might have a similar thing going between them. But it would be a different election campaign in 24 when they're both ministers, they're both, you know, people are no longer looking at them as untested. Especially uh, Baerbach, right? I think that's going to be a big one, right? That- she will be, I mean, she's been, she's, you know, they're both incredibly competent ministers and very popular. And they, you know, they, they address different parts of the electorates. And they're kind of, as a team, they're very, very strong. They are, they are kind of, a, they're kind of a wonderful team, actually. No, no, they hit it very well. And speaking of that, on, on this kind of subject, bringing back to the question of, you know, do they have a plan B? I think that there are probably different attitudes in the German coalition to this question about the Russian gas. The SPD, of course, are like kind of joined at the hip to this, right? You know, this is their, you know, yeah, um, you know, they're they're kind of sine qua non. But for the Greens, I think it is a different story. Um, you know, feel free to disagree. My own impression of like Habeck's kind of stance on this is that 
he probably doesn't want to be like blamed for any of the fallout that would arise from something like a Russian gas shutoff. But in principle, I, I don't think he would look to avert it at all costs, right? I think his main consideration would be like, am I seen as being principally responsible for this versus do I want this to happen? Because again, his kind of idea of where Germany should be going is longer term. And to be honest, arguably something like this happen, happening only facilitates that shift. No, I agree. If, if Putin cuts the gas, it would be a disaster for the SPD, but the Greens would probably you know, find the upside on this uh, quite quickly. The only problem for the Greens in this scenario is they would come under pressure to keep the power station, the nuclear power stations on. This is something that Harvick tries to avoid. Uh, in that sense, but again, it's it's. I, I agree. That's a question with of timing, right? I mean, it's just the transitional period. He could push his uh, renewable energy agenda much. Yeah. I, I was, I was about like, to say they could. He could make a lot of headway on renewables because, I mean, at at that point, I think when you talk about the security of supply considerations that would come with renewables expansion, yeah. like the the conversation about them politically, financially, legally would be completely different. Yeah. You know, I, I think we all have these ideas and estimates of what is possible with renewables, but that is conditional on now in the current political, economic and financial climate. In a world where renewables are your surest route to energy security and you're facing a shortfall in energy supplies, I think what you'll find is that people can move a lot more quickly than they said yeah. they can move. No, that's right. And also one, 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 one interesting observation is that for the first time, I think since the 1970s, there's no majority of Germans in favor of nuclear energy. Now, it's, it's interesting how fast public opinions can change in, in, you know, in the face of adversity, which is also for us as analysts an, an indication that we should not take opinion polls too seriously because they're sometimes oh, leaders. Oh, it's contextual, it's right? Exactly. The leaders astray. And I remember all these opinion polls during, you know, the American elections and British referendums and people took too much comfort or discomfort from them. And in the end, the electorate had his own way of deciding that was often very, very different. Yeah. Talking about opinion polls, uh, we've seen an opinion poll this morning in France, according to which Emmanuel Macron could lose his majority uh, in the parliamentary elections. Now, we're recording this on Friday morning. The parliamentary elections are on Sunday night, so this is still, we're still a, a good way away away from it. If you listen to this, you know, after, after Sunday, you will know more than we do. But speaking from our perspective here on Friday, what, uh, Susanna, what do you think? Um, I'm, I'm not asking you what's, what's going to happen because, you know, nobody knows, but how should we think about this? Yeah, um uh, this is the, the, the poll you're referring to, is the poll from uh, Le Figaro, published in Le Figaro. And it it has the majority down for with the seats of uh, two, between 255 to 292 uh, seats. And what is, uh, uh, what is the majority? The majority then? is 289. So, so it's below, it's mostly below. Mostly below. Mm. Uh, other polls are a bit more optimistic. So, for example, in Les Echos, they have them up to 305 seats, but also the lower end is uh, 265 seats. So we're talking about a range where uh, a relative majority is possible uh, and an absolute majority is not guaranteed. 
Now we've seen uh, in this last week of campaigning between the first and the second round, we've seen uh, some very heated debates basically between uh, the majority as such internally, but also between the, 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 the majority and the, the aliens on the left, the noop, uh, noopists. Or, uh, uh, man, uh, there's actually been a debate in France It's a debate, this. isn't it? Yeah, because yeah, yeah, the yeah. French say noopists. Uh, and We're I, right into uh, us with your preferred pronunciation. Yes. <laughs> So I, I go with noop uh, because uh, there's certain there's a certain panache behind that, and it also for me reflects a little bit the Jean Luc Mélenchon kind of no saying kind of attitude. I, 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 I go for noop because it sounds funnier. If it sounds funny, yeah, but it's also a, a sort of like no thank you kind of in a, in a short kind of uh, noop uh, form. So um, I stick with noop anyway. But it's between these two. So what is clear is that the NUB are up for becoming uh, the second largest group in, in the assembly. I think this is without a doubt. We don't have to discuss that anymore. The question is how strong it will be. That's another question. But uh, and also it's also clear that they will they will not catch up in a sense. I mean, their range is up to 210 uh, seats and it really depends on how, in how many races they are in and in how many, well, not, they're not represented. So we don't have to debate whether or not they're going to be overtaking. I mean, they're overtaking it in terms of uh, suffrage. I mean, they've, they've uh, they might be close in terms of percentage, but not necessarily seats because they're not represented in all the constituencies. What is interesting, or the question is, uh, what is a relative majority? What does it mean uh, if Macron is actually getting a relative majority? It means two things. One is um, regarding his own majority. Uh, so uh, En Marche is actually a group uh, that relies on two, will rely on two others. That's Modem and uh, from uh, François Barrault and uh, Horizon from the former, his former prime minister, Edouard Philippe. Now, the way they treated En Marche was quite sort of confident. The, main, the, the way they treated them after the presidential elections was basically to tell them, look, you know, we can win without you. And so we give you a, a couple of minister jobs, but it was definitely less than they had hoped for in the new government. So there was a little, already a little bit kind of um, dissatisfaction going on uh, at that pace. And definitely they came out now really strongly to make sure they say, well, well, we show our presence and we have our agendas and we have different points here to make. And whatever the results will be, we'll make sure we're going to be heard. Yeah. And I think I think it's also worth saying that with Bayrou, but with especially Philippe, there's a bit of history with this too. There's a history. That's definitely a history. So now coming to the second point, what it will be, if you have a relative majority, then you definitely need another, uh, you need to negotiate more. That seems to be the preferred scenario uh, for the French. The French, 70% in, in the Le Figaro poll, actually warned to limit the power of uh, Emmanuel Macron and have only a relative majority, not an absolute majority in the parliament. So even the ones who voted for him. So that's kind of a, an unusual, it's just definitely different from, uh, from, from previous elections. It would mean that he would have to make a deal with Les Républicains on the right, 
And there, I mean, we're talking about 40 seats, 40 to 60 or 70 seats uh, that they could add. And definitely they could assure an absolute majority if they want to. Would that be like a coalition or would this be more like a minority government, like a supply, what they call it, a supply and... Uh, a confidence, confidence supply agreement. What, what it, well, that's it's still debatable. I mean, Jean-François Coupé, uh, he was actually uh, advocating some form of an agreement, mm. but that is controversial within the Le, Le Républicains. I would say it would make them into the kingmakers here, and, and from having like being having had a meltdown during the presidential elections, now they actually could emerge as the kingmakers in this in these these races. Yeah, it also works differently. I mean, I, I don't think you can apply terms like confidence and supply to the French system because the president picks the cabinet rather than the parliament, right? You know, so you yeah. Know. But there's always, stru- I mean, there's, all, there's, a, there's, so a there's an understanding. Yeah, yeah. There was an understanding that okay, cool. if there is a strong show of the others, then either they they, they used to, I mean. If the other party would have won, they normally there was an understanding that they that, that they appoint a prime minister from that party cohabitation. Yes. But we don't really get there because of the way the seats are. Um, so we, this is not a scenario that we have to sort of contemplate at this point. Jean Luc Mélenchon will not become a prime minister just because he's getting the maximum amount of seats because he's not going to overtake them in terms of how the, the election is that is is the. Is going in these. Um, I think they have two hundred and eighty-five uh, runoffs against the each other, and then another fifty-four. I think against the far right. Is this the majority that is fifty-four against the far right? No, the the majority has hundred and eight. Uh, hundred and eight, and it's 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 um it's Nupu has fifty-four against yeah, the far right. Yeah. Okay, so okay, yeah. well, I mean the the upside for Macron is he gets an he gets an absolute majority. What's the upside for the Nup? Uh, what's sort of the best thing they can achieve? And if they achieve that, where would that put them? Oh, I mean, they're already... Are we dealing with like 200, 220 seats, something like in this? Is 210, 220, yeah. Yeah, they could have. Uh, but they couldn't be... There is no poll that would where their upside is, is higher than the downside for Macron. No. So it's basically, there's always no a gap. Seen, I've seen okay. no, no poll uh, right. saying, I mean, there was always a gap between the highest of the new and, and the lowest. And, the lowest. The and I think that's, uh, my reading was that it's because they're not present, present or they're, they're not in the runoffs, in enough runoffs to actually physically be able to pull this off. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, to be honest, they're already experiencing the upside, you know, the best that they could possibly hope for. And they kind of would, regardless of the precise number of seats they get in the second round, because they'll they'll be the second largest party in the Assemblée yeah. Nationale. And, you know, that will obviously give them more prominence. It will give them a better platform to kind of advocate their positions. You know, as you wrote about Suzanne, it will give them um, certain important committee positions. Yeah. Um, the you know, in the finance, finance committee, committee. The finance committee in particular. So really, I guess the upside for Noop was always going to be to kind of bring back the French left from the dead. Mm. And even over the course of the campaign, like Mélenchon's presidential campaign and this campaign managing to come together, they've, they've basically kind of already gotten most of the way towards achieving that. So, you know, I guess in as much as we can talk about a best case scenario, they're kind of already in that best case scenario, at least in my opinion. Well, yeah, but they can also do more. Uh, I mean, definitely the way Jean-Luc Mélenchon was consolidating his power also inside the Alliance, right? A lot of Mm -hmm. his positions now became not only his own party's positions, but sort of made it into the Alliance 
And the, the more he's actually seeing as winning, as he's, the more he actually can uh, persuade the uh, the left alliance to follow on follow his lead and actually make it kind of like a third round, as he'd like to. Uh, what this PR stunt Yeah, the Twasium Tour, yeah, yeah. The yeah. Twasium Tour, it was a, quite a PR stunt that was never actually feasible, but uh, because he did it that way, he mobilized a lot of left uh, voters. And that's another thing we don't know yet. I mean, there are a lot of unknowns for this Sunday, and one of the biggest unknowns is um, who's going to show up in these elections. So if we have an unequal abstention, the abstention it will be high, but the question is, at one end, are they high? Are they high for uh, Macron? voters? Are they high for Marine Le Pen voters or are they high for amongst the young people? Uh, it's like a relative, um, who, who has a relative pull and more position to mobilize its voters relative to the others. The other thing is uh, in these, how do those who actually dropped out of this race, how do, how, how do they decide? I mean, one of the dangerous strategies of Macron's party majority was to diabolize the noob in the way they did it with Marine Le Pen saying we need a Republican vote against the far right. They're dangerous because they have a lot of uh, it would be disruption. We stand here. There, there would be chaos. We stand here for stability. So vote for us. By doing that, they risk that the noobs are actually doing payback time and saying, well, if you do that to us, we're not going to vote for you in these constituencies where we have the choice between you and uh, the far right because you're just that this campaign against us. So it's kind of payback time. So we don't know yet. It's not an official line, but we, we, we've seen one constituency where this strategy actually backfired already. Uh, and where the protest vote was even more against uh, the majority. Yeah, and I think, I mean, this is something we were discussing before the podcast too, but, you know, I think that as well, the problem with the strategy is simply that Noop are not as scary as Le Pen. Yeah. And you were saying this earlier. I mean, Noop includes like the Greens, right? Who, who, who is serious? Socialists. Yeah. I mean, who's seriously going to think that the Greens or the PS are like an extreme candidate that you need a Republican front against? Mm. Like it just it, it, it doesn't make sense. I think another interesting thing will be as well how new squares some of their kind of ideological and policy circles once they're actually finished with the elections, you know. The area where they probably have the most agreement and probably hit the closest to social consensus is on the environment. That's an area where they can all kind of, you know, find common cause. Europe will be, I think, yeah, that, you know, as you've said before, the most difficult one for them. A lot of the payers people had to kind of swallow a lot on Europe when they joined up with Mélenchon's forces. Mm. I mean, it'll be a similar one with the Greens, who are pretty pro-Europe, too. Mm. Yeah. Zana, you were writing also about the important role of abstentions. How would abstention, from what we can say today, two days ahead of the elections, how would this how would a high level of ex, uh, abstention play into the relative positioning of the of the two main uh, groups yeah that's um, I, i said that just before it's it's like it's relative ex, uh, um, abstention i mean the, the forecast for total abstention is like 53% something like that so quite uh, historically high so if the noobs, uh, for example, won't show up in, in a race where they have to face the choice between a candidate from the majority or a candidate from the far right, they might now choose not to show up. 
that could actually mean that the majority would be deprived of the left of on whom they relied upon actually in the presidential elections. So uh, it might might put them at risk. Uh, we also see also a question also but always with the young people. You never know whether they will show up or not. Uh, we see quite a lot of mobilization going on, and they seem to be quite motivated to show up. And there's some momentum going for the left, so they might show up more than, for example, the more kind of suburban uh, voters that uh, Emmanuel Macron is relying on. So um, Marine Le Pen, there is an expectation that her voters, because of the disappointment in the presidential elections, uh, might tend to be more reserved and might not go to the vote. So that's the expectations. But then again, these things are, we, we're talking about five, not only one election, but we're talking about 577 yeah. elections and races. So to make a, a prediction on the national level on something so strategic where voters not actually only vote for, uh, according to their preferences, but vote strategically. And there are two strategic reasons here. Either you actually eliminate the candidate you don't want, or you actually uh, vote for one you want most likely to push forward. These are the two reasons why you could vote strategically uh, and not in alliance with your candidate who might or might not be part of the third uh, race. And finally, how do we think is the is Macron's visit to Kiev, you know, along with Draghi and Scholz, and playing into this into the French debate? Is this something that that has an effect, or more likely not? Well, it definitely had a little. Uh, in, in in a sense, it stopped short a little bit this whole rumors about him being too close to Putin, and I think that sort of image of him being showing up, showing up there yeah. in Kiev. That stopped that kind of rumor a little bit in its in its in its tracks. Whether it has more uh, more flesh to it, that's another question because it's quite late in the game. We don't know what it means uh, in terms of policies. What is going to happen next? How big the constituency of pro Ukraine kind of people amongst his voters are? There is a there is sort of also a strong kind of. Uh, pro-Russian constituency as well in, in, in France. So this is all kind of relative. Yeah. But I'd, it's it's clear it was sort of a, a very subtle point towards um, distinguishing himself from the new in foreign policy, saying this is what I'm standing for, whether or not it plays in this, I don't know. Yeah, my, my impression of Macron's visit along um, to Kiev was that It was not really about the parliamentary elections. It was about his standing with other leaders in Europe. The fact that his reputation was basically crashing and burning with Central Eastern and Eastern European leaders. And, you know, for his various other big ideas and proposals on Europe, he needed to do something to rehabilitate himself and repair that image. You know, an off kind of not remarked part of his visit to Kiev is that the fourth person who came along was Klaus Johannes, the president of Romania. Yeah. So, you know, especially important, not only that Macron went to Kiev, but that he went with an Eastern European leader as but well. But does this play into sort of constituency races or is this sort of something, no, kind of I mean, the kind of thing we discuss here in front no, of the microphone? Exactly. I mean, one of his MPs, a couple of them were 
was saying, why is he on earth? Is he going on the tour in Europe? Why well, we need him here to talk yeah. about national issues? So, and they feel a little bit abandoned about uh, about that and the, the lack of program, a real program that they can campaign on. We don't have many reforms to campaign on. This is a, a real lack and a real difference to uh, compared with the 2017 uh, race. There was a clear momentum. There was a clear agenda. They knew exactly what to campaign on. And this time it's much less, there's much less flesh in his program to do that. And the government, as it is under Elizabeth Warren, is not really kind of stepping forward and filling that gap. Yeah, I mean, I would also say, though, that I think it's difficult for Macron to credibly set out a vision this time around because of how volatile the wider kind of context around him is. You know, of course, he had his kind of reformist agenda the first time around in 2017. He got somewhere with that, but that very quickly ended up, you know, his government ended up switching into crisis management mode midway through because of the pandemic. Then you had the war in Ukraine. Now, of course, you have pouvoir d'achat. So, you know, almost it's a part, I'm making a partial defense of Macron here. It'd be almost kind of disingenuous, I think, to set out a cohesive vision because we honestly do not know what's going to come next in the next five years. Yeah, but on the other hand, the two the big programs that he actually laid out uh, hardly ever debated. I mean, it's, well, it's the, the the pension reforms and also his idea of the advisory council. It doesn't really go well. I mean, we all talk about the press on the media. They all talk about the NUP and their programs and their 160 billion of uh, tax rises. So they really kind of have the, uh, they've got the media on their side. I get a sense we're going to talk about the subject next week <laughs> as well yeah. and on gas uh, because yes. both both of these stories are still, still, still with us. So I think it's time for us to wrap it up today. Well, thank you for listening. Until next week.